Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. I'm Brian, I'm here with Aaron. Hello. And welcome to episode 11 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And today, after literally months of negotiations, a lot of back and forth, we finally got our everyman, Joe, John, we mentioned way back in episode two for you loyal listeners. So we want to welcome Joe Onisik from Worldwide Technologies. Joe, how are you doing tonight? Doing fantastic. Thanks for uh, having me. Good. Thanks for you being on. Where are you at tonight? I am in lovely St. Louis on a, a perfect night. Very, very cool. So, Joe, before we jump into this, we kind of got to ask you a question. We got to figure out what side of the fence you live on. Aaron is one of those guys who works hard hours, works long hours at work, you know, shows up to the podcast late because he's being a great father. He's putting his kids to bed. Me, on the other hand, I'm jerking around making M&M videos at work. What side of the fence do you live on? Are you a worker or are you goofball? I, I am a worker, uh, absolutely on the worker side. So listen, man, you know, as part of the big negotiation we've been having with you back and forth or just, you know, sort of joking around, we've been trying to get Joe on the podcast for forever and it's always been Aaron. And I's fault for you know not making our calendar very uh, very available. You just went out and bought a sweet new ride. So tell us about your car and tell us about the, what the over under is for number of speeding tickets you're going to get with that bad boy. Oh well, yeah, so I'm uh, absolutely thrilled with the new ride. I, I've never been happier with a car. Um, it was a spur of the moment decision. I was in a Honda dealership helping somebody else buy a car and talked to the dealer. And after about five minutes of conversation, a single test drive, the salesman told me he had nothing to sell me, and he apologized for that. So I uh, left Honda and talked to a friend on Twitter and got suggested the uh, Cadillac CTSV. And about a week later, I've got one rolling off a truck ready for me and uh, walked out that day from the dealership with it. Absolutely lovely. Street legal race car, huh? It, it is definitely a street legal race car. And the over-under is basically, I, if you're betting that I still have a license at the end of the summer, you're not a smart man. <laughs> Nice, very nice. <laughs> so you were, uh, so you were recently. You were doing uh, doing a webinar. You had kind of a big audience for a webinar, talking innovation, talking integrated stacks. You've been pretty vocal about you know your take on you know where single vendor stuff and best of breed stuff is. How the how the how the webinar go? How many people showed up? What was the what was the vibe at that event? Uh, so the the event went really well. It was it was excellent. I mean the turnout uh, definitely could have been better, but it was kind of average for that particular uh, feed. Uh, typically they get a lot more on the recorded viewing than they do on the live viewing. So I think we had at most maybe 15 or so viewing live but it was a it was a great conversation about you know the difference between taking a multi-vendor approach to a real integrated private cloud stack as to a, as opposed to this single vendor approach and, and obviously uh, you know where I stand and most know where I stand I'm, I'm big on the multi-vendor approach and, so, and just so you know Joe uh, I was actually one of those guys who got the replay uh, I was actually on vacation last week when when you actually did it and so I think I don't know Monday or Tuesday I don't remember which I actually caught the replay and I shot a link over to Brian I was like yep you gotta check this out this is a pretty good, pretty good deal. So, so I was very impressed with the approach, and 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 just so kind of everyone knows here, uh, Joe and I go way, way back here, you know, back to my pre VCE days, and and so uh, we tend to talk a lot of smack between EMC and NetApp and all of the other different vendors. And even though Joe has kind of expressed his love for NetApp uh, through his blog, uh, you know, we, we we still think he's okay, and and, and certainly, uh, you know, WWT is doing a good job over there. So. Uh. <laughs> No, we love we love WWT. You guys are good guys, and you, you spend enough time on Twitter that uh, we all know your personality and, and the people over there. So, Aaron, you know, we should tell the folks ahead of time. We've become fans of that that online sort of viral phenomenon, My Drunk Kitchen. We've decided to do My Drunk Podcast tonight. So, all three <laughs> of us are uh, halfway in the well. So, we'll see how this thing turns out. So, one of the things that Aaron and I talked about like long time ago was, you know, you're sort of famous for some of your rants on Twitter and some of the things you've done on your blog. You know, tonight we we're going to cover a whole bunch of topics and news and stuff. So, at any point, if you just want to go off on a rant three four five minutes feel free to jump in and just go off and, and let folks know uh, what you think about the world that is an absolutely dangerous idea and i pretty, uh, appreciate that mildly <laughs> go get some more scotch right now it's all on <laughs> 
<laughs> so Aaron, and, you want and, to uh, you want to start uh, us off? Yeah. So so what I was going to say is um, typically as a general rule up until now we we've kind of stayed a, away from our, our parent companies as much as possible. There there hasn't been a lot of mention of VCE on the podcast or Cisco on the podcast. But tonight where there's a lot of news stories typically around a lot of the vendor stacks, and so something that happened is during EMC World and and we'll kind of go into EMC World and some of the other uh, product releases and announcements that came out of there. But one of the ones kind of related to VCE was they announced the the next generation, if you will, of VBlock configurations, the VBlock 300. And it is basically uh, the VBlock with EMC's VNX array behind it. And I'll kind of just throw it over to you guys real quick because I can talk for, you know, I can talk this to death, but I probably shouldn't at this point. So I'm just going to kind of flip it over to you guys and say, what have you heard and, and what do you think and, and what are your um, opinions of the new VBlock 300? Okay, because obviously Obviously, uh, getting the new EMC storage platforms in there is, is a big deal. You don't want to be outselling uh, essentially VBlocks on top of platforms that, although they're not end of life, they're, you know, if for, for all intents and purposes, end of sale, right? You're not going to see a lot of new Clarion sales or, or others. So that's obviously a good thing. I think the other thing, thought the other big part of the, the new VBlock announcements was sort of this more modular sub VBlock configurations. Is that still what's going on? I mean, you can sort of buy hacks of blades and smaller subsets of disks, so they're getting to a much more configurable sort of bill of materials. Is that is that part of it as well? It it is. And so what is happening with the VBlock 300 is VCE is opening up the, the flexibility, if you will, in ordering it. There, You can order it now in smaller blades. The minimum numbers are, are a lot smaller than they used to be before. The actual configuration is a, a lot more wide open in what you can order both on the front end on the compute side or on the back end on the storage than it used to be. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's standardized, but, but more flexible, if I use that term. Those have been probably the biggest things. And then another version of UIM, uh, UIM version 2.1 came out as well with a bunch of new features and a bunch of new support with the VBlocks. So Joe, um, I'm going to flip it over to you and put you on the spot. And, and, you know, again, feel free to be honest here because we've got some FlexPod stories and some VCE stories tonight. So so on the VCE side of the house and the VBlocks, so what has been your take and what has been your opinion so far? No, I'm, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly impressed with the new VBlock offerings in the EMC world announcements overall my entire team has come back just giddy with with some of the stuff that was announced there and i've been looking back through a lot of the a lot of the things it's just a fantastic amount of innovation coming out of emc right now uh, these new v blocks really they offer that a little more flexibility and kind of get past some of that some of that reality but some of that fud about v blocks being locked into a certain configuration uh, and again bring in as brian said those new product platforms and, and really launches into the next step the last piece that i love is the uim increases UIM I, I was absolutely not a fan of with the 1.0 release, but it has increased by leaps and bounds uh, over the, the last releases. And every time you guys bring out a new set of features and really make that a unifying automation platform for the entire system, congrats over all the VCE and EMC on that. So the flip side of that, so you've got VCE and VBlock going the more flexible path, if you will. And on the flip side of that, you've got Avnet, who's one of the major distributors, offering pre-built FlexPod bundles. Um, you know, the knock on VCE and, Fle- and uh, VBlock was always not flexible enough. Uh, the knock from uh, from the EMC crowd or the VCE crowd on FlexPod was just buying a reference architecture and uh, it doesn't come prepackaged out, out of the manufacturing bin. So taking a bite out of each other and, and uh, learning a little bit from each other. From a WWT perspective, you guys have a huge business of kind of pre-integration. Is this a good thing for you guys or is this something that you look at and go, ah, not a big deal. We already provided that. That's a, that's an excellent question. It was one of those ones that I tossed around a lot in my mind and I'm obviously not going to speak on, on behalf of my company at all. But uh, I, I think overall what Abnet's offering is fantastic for the publicity and for the more 
market of FlexPod as a whole. You know, they're giving that kind of one phone number support. They're giving the pre-integrated block. That's fantastic. That's going to allow the smaller VARs to use Avnet as a distributor to, to deliver that type of model. On the other hand, that's something WBT and my company has been doing since we became a system integrator. So it's something we can still offer the same value or similar values to our customers in that way. I think what Avnet does for the overall market is allow more people to do it and publicize kind of that, that same concept. On the other hand, I don't think in any way it cuts away from what VCE does because there's a magic piece behind the VCE uh, company as a whole that people don't seem to realize. And I think Aaron's team is, is a big part of this is that VCE company is also designed to drive what's coming in these products and has the ties into the parent companies to drive new innovation and drive new collaboration that on the FlexPod side, they really don't have that piece. So it's up to the partners and, and other, other entities to do that. So I don't think this detracts from VC's value as long as that value is known. And I'll just kind of add something else to that is whether it is FlexPod or, or whether it is VBlock, bringing the distributors in really is key because I can't remember if I've had this conversation with you before or not, Joe. I know I've had it with Brian many times, but I actually once upon a time worked for IBM and supporting Tech Data, one of the big distributors. And you really get an eye-opening experience when you work very closely with one of the distributors. And it is amazing to me how they're much more than just the middleman who kind of buys everything and, and resells everything and collects a few points on it. The functions a distributor typically does is actually very, very valuable for especially a lot of the smaller integrators out there. And so you hit on a very good point in the fact that no matter what kind of solution it is, when you're looking at a, a private cloud or an integrated stack or whatever we, we, we want to call this, involving the distributors helps streamline that process and really helps drive adoption in the market. I totally agree. And on that note, I, I have to tip my had to have that. I've worked with them for years in the past with other other uh, jobs. But they, they do an amazing job above just distribution. Even like their, the training and seminars and conferences that they put together. Fantastic um, overall. And from my knowledge, Aaron, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, I still don't believe Avnet is engaging a direct to customer model or at least not heavily engaging in that. Is that. Do you know if that's correct? That is correct. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. As of probably a year ago or so when I kind of quit following a lot of the distributors, that was correct. The, there was only one distributor out there and it wasn't Avnet that was really kind of pursuing the, the customers in, instead of just serving as middlemen to a lot of the VARs and business partners out there. Exactly. And that, that was my understanding. So really, really this offering from Avnet is, is another way to enable the partners in the channel, which is, is fantastic overall for the customer and the end benefit. Yep. It's good Good for folks. It gives gives people financing options. It gives them sort of time delivery options as well as, like you said, all the stuff they do around training and providing labs and stuff like that. So good for the value chain. So let's let's step away a little bit from kind of VCE and Cisco and VMware and EMC and NetApp stuff so folks don't think this just becomes sort of a commercial for things that we do every day. A lot of stuff going on in the things higher up in the stack. So between Red Hat Summit, EMC World announced a bunch of stuff beyond just storage and so forth. You know, VMware's been announcing some stuff. Citrix Synergy was going on. Let's just sort of run down the list and, and get some opinions from people. You know, Red Hat, a uh, couple, couple about a month or so ago, VMware got into the platform as a service business. They got into uh, announce something called Cloud Foundry, which was basically their way of doing open source, platform as a service. Red Hat came back this last week or so after the uh, Red Hat Summit. They announced something called Red Hat OpenShift, which was PaaS platform. Their platform as a service 
that will be open source here fairly soon. So this has been an interesting discussion that Aaron and I have, have had a million times uh, off the air and, and slightly on the air. So Joe is a big systems integrator. So WWT, big systems integrator. You guys obviously have a ton of business that's infrastructure driven. How much are you guys paying attention to all these things higher up in the stack, whether they're cloud management like vCloud Director or even higher up where you're getting into platform as a service and talking to customers about rewriting applications or new applications? So that's another great question. It, it comes into the fact that reseller or system integrator level right now, we have to realize that our business model needs to shift. Uh, maybe not change completely, but shift. Cloud and public cloud are going to be things that could either compete or complete what we have to offer. Uh, so we have a big focus internally on these upper level platforms, on how we can deliver platform as service, how we can enable our customers, or even more importantly, how we can help them transition from where they're at right now to a public cloud type offering. So we've got a team internally, and I'm not going to speak in any way, shape, or form as a technical expert on these things, but we got a team internally who focuses all day long on this type of stuff. And Aaron, jump in here. You know, one of the things we talk about all the time is, I mean, that's a huge skill set difference between the, you know, people that have been classically trained on infrastructure and people that have been applications and developers. How do you guys see that, you know, affecting your business or how do you see that just individually as something that you've got to go, you know, start to learn about? So I will simply say, and I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but typically you kind of come up through the ranks. If you're an infrastructure person, you kind of came up on the network side and then you flipped over and kind of learned some of the other pieces or you came up as a server server guy or a storage guy, and you eventually, once infrastructure uh, or virtualization came out, you kind of added that to your infrastructure tool belt. And, and it, eventually, you kind of move up the stack and you move across the stack, and maybe you, you will eventually cover all of the areas. But it is almost unheard of, to be honest with you, uh, unless you know you're, you're, you're somebody like Nick Weaver or Ed Saipatchew. They've kind of consciously made that transition from the infrastructure side of the house over to the platform side of the house or vice versa or kind of straddle that line and you're actually a developer who's also a good infrastructure person. It, it is a very, very different mindset. It's not something that you just go learn on the weekends or you go study a book at night. And so the shift between infrastructure as a service and platform as a service is a very much a larger difference than it has been in the past than, say, a networking person versus a storage and server person. It's an interesting thing. We had a discussion. Some, we were talking to some folks the other day. You know, I mean, I got to imagine you're a Red Hat reseller, you're an integrator around, you know, Linux things, or, or even if you're a big VMware shop, you know, those guys are starting to knock on your door and say, hey, let's go talk about Spring Source. Let's go talk about, you know, some of the things we do. Is that completely Latin and Greek to, to the guys at your shop? Or are there are there guys who understand what that is, or are you just kind of trying to muddle through it? <laughs> I mean, it's it's um, you know, I mean, I mean, I know for I, me personally, it's I know the buzzwords. Like I feel like I'm a an HR recruiter. Like I know the buzzwords that are important. But you know, what'll be the difference between say Red Hat's open platform that supports Java and Ruby and PHP and VMware's that supports the same sets of you know languages? It's like, uh, you know. The difference is, I don't know how you dig into that other than just say, you know, I pick a favorite and I develop against their tools. I, I tend to agree. I don't. What's your, what's your take, Joe? And, and that, that's a really tough question, but I, honestly, <laughs> I, I think it's going to come down to you know personal taste on that one. I mean, if you look at, at some of the places where Linux and Red Hat and other other things like that have really taken off, it's been university levels or uh, hospital levels where they're looking to really cut costs and not pay for MS licenses and the rest or VMware licenses. I think when you when you have a shop that's traditionally been VMware and liked it and 
and gotten what they need from it, they're going to lean towards VMware. And when you have a shop that's traditionally been Linux-based, Red Hat-based, and the rest, and gotten what they wanted from it, they're going to lean that way. I don't know that there's going to be that much difference in the technical merits overall between the two. Yeah, I think, that, and that's the thing I always hear from developers is like, you know, like I've never found two developers that agree on the same set of tools or the same same way to develop stuff. And yeah, they're going to find stuff that that works for them. You know, the one thing that jumps out at me is all these platform as a service offerings tend to get looked at initially. They get, you know, the big hype, this is going to be the new way the internet's going to get built. This is going to be the new way the public cloud gets built. But if all of them are basically open source and you can run them anywhere you want, like I got to imagine there's going to be a lot of folks that because of sort of maybe lack of trust of what maybe they can get from the public providers, they're going to start experimenting with this internally first, right? Like they couldn't do that with Amazon. You had to, you know, you had to run it out in their cloud. If I can go download this and run it internally, I got to imagine that's going to be the place this will take off you know, first and foremost, or at least you'll see a lot of little proof of concepts and you'll find a lot of developers who go, yeah, I've been hacking around with this stuff. And I'm not sure those guys expecting that to, to happen. I'd, I'd have to agree with that completely. And I think VMware is going to have to answer that model and make sure that these guys can get into testing for free. It's the same way they kind of had to go with the SXI for free, because honestly, I'd, be, I'd say easily that platform as a service is the end-all be-all goal, but yeah, that doesn't yeah. mean it's going to happen. There's been plenty of end-all be-all goals that are technical superiors that have died in the winds. About it is, you know, for either one of these, and you know, I, I just kind of lightly keep track of what goes on at the events and the trade shows and stuff. I don't feel like there's enough big evangelist people. Like you can't point to if you're if you're talking about VMware or storage or something, I mean you're gonna point to dudes like Chad Sackett or you know, you'd point to like Vaughn Stewart over at NetApp or you'd maybe point to like Duncan at VMware. Like that's that's the dude. He's always talking about it. Like for some of these other platforms and so forth, I don't know who that person is that people go, they're kind of driving where things are going, they're they're cutting through the crap. So that'll be sort of interesting because you're you got to get people to buy into something before they start changing you know the so other friend yeah there you go that's it there's a job there's my job for you Paz evangelist that is a tough <laughs> job because when you when you look at Linux I've always looked at it as uh all, all of the Linux type closest to evangelists that I've met is it's kind of if you don't get it you're too stupid to get it they, yeah, exactly that's kind of the attitude I've gotten from the Linux community it's like well why should we make it easier you should just understand how to make it happen and we we don't have to make it easier. You need to be smarter. The, the, the thing the thing that I the thing that I always know that I'm completely out of my element when I'm talking to some of the internal developers, right? So I'll just you know developers internally at Cisco or something, and you'll go and you'll ask them a question. So you feel like like you've been thinking about this thing, and and you're like, all right, have I thought about this from like all these different angles, and I'm going to go ask this guy who develops stuff that I think is in this space, and you go ask him this question, and they sit there for a couple of seconds, and they kind of stare at the ceiling, and they they think about it for for a couple of seconds, and you know in the back of their mind they're going, why would it Anybody have wasted their time on a question that's stupid? You know, it's it, you just really you're like I, I don't know what the f- hell I'm talking about. What in the world am I doing? And, and uh, I think Joe's right. I think that's he's exactly right. If you don't, if you're not, if you're not writing code every day and you're not living in their world, they're they're just going to look at you like you're a complete idiot. Now the now the interesting now this is the interesting thing to me long term for something like VMware. So you've got these you've got these platforms as a service, right? That are basically quite new types of application, web scale applications, dynamic cloud applications, those things don't necessarily expect to have a VM running underneath them, right? So now you have, do I need a VM, which is where somebody like VMware makes their money, or even, you know, Red Hat, you know, has a license for some of the things they do around virtualization, and they're coming out with these 
predicting the future on these platforms that are open source that don't require the thing that makes them any money. It's it's an interesting sort of Oreo cookie they're building, right? They've got on one hand, you know, VMware is getting into the as a software as a service business, right? They acquired Socialcast, they acquired Slide Rocket, which you know should make them money if people are willing to adapt. And they've got this big layer in the middle that's you know the new versions of the applications that it's not clear how they're going to make any money. You know, it's it's got to be a weird place to be if you're a you're your systems integrator. If you're a customer, it's probably fantastic because you go, wow, this is awesome. I can basically get access to free software that you know I used to pay Microsoft and all these other guys money for. But if you're the vendor, you know, you're you're VMware or something. It's an interesting strategy they're taking, trying to make money but but eat their you know sort of eat the young as they go along. I think yeah, VMware and gets that though. That I mean, if you look at the recent acquisitions, they get that kind of the concept that the virtual server idea is not going to be around forever. And I, it's actually been a blog I've been tossing around for a while is, is kind of virtualization, server virtualization, especially desktop virtualization uh, equivalently, is, is more of a band-aid for a broken process than it is anything else. And it's the great band-aid and it fixes a lot and it has more than enough benefit to keep it going for years. But the fact is the broken process is this one application, one operating system idea in servers or this multiple applications operating system idea in workstations. And you got people like Google delivering laptops that are totally cloud-based that are just going to blow that out of the water eventually. So VMware's positioning themselves, making acquisitions. They understand it. It's just they've got a cash cow that they're going to continue to execute on in the meantime. And and something else I'll, I'll add to that as well is, especially with the social cast and Slide Rocket and, and Zimbra, VMware has very much, in my opinion, made it clear that not only is the underlying infrastructure more and more becoming commodity every day, but they need to go define a new cash cow and, well, Who's somebody they could pick on? Well, quite frankly, it's it's Microsoft, right? Microsoft has been very slow to adopt cloud. It's almost been like kicking and screaming and only doing things when they absolutely have to and, and launching things. And with the exception of probably maybe maybe Azure not really having a lot of success that, you know, they just they seem to be like the one to pick on right now, right? And if we can go, because I remember way back when, when we were doing a lot of integrations, when Active Directory was first around, right? We used to do a lot of Active Directory integrations and Exchange integrations. That's, you know, before companies really had any of this infrastructure. And all of that infrastructure has been in place and simply been upgraded for how many years now? Well, what does the next generation of infrastructure look like? Well, if VMware can help shape what that infrastructure looks like and you start replacing the the traditional elements of the office, you know, Exchange, and Office and all of these other products and update them with something that is more modern, more collaborative, and more cloud-based, and VMware gets to be the sender of that. I mean, that really seems like the cash cow future for VMware. And it almost seems to me like the, the Cloud Foundry and some of these, some of these other things is they're, they're, they want to be in that market to be in that market, but I don't, I don't know how much money they plan to make off of it. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. You mentioned the, the wonderful job you want to send me off to do to be the Johnny Appleseed of Platform as a Service. I, I think <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. think, I think there's a I think there's a legitimate business. I think there's a legitimate opportunity for some folks to do some business that basically are going to help customers take a bunch of these software as a service, right? So whether you're, I went to a seminar a week or so ago that was for the Google stack. So there was you know systems integrators basically pushing the Google stack. You know I think VMware is going to be in that space. But if you're good at basically sitting down with customers and trying to help them understand the change part of it, not the technology part, because 
you're going to make documents, you're going to make presentations, you're going to collaborate with people, whatever. But if you're good at the change part, like I think there's a lot of money for people to be, to be made. And the good news is there's still a level of sort of technical advisory you've got to provide. But if you're an integrator, like the, the amount of financial risk you have to take on about, you know, holding equipment and doing proof of concepts without getting purchase orders, like this is probably a fantastic thing for them. Agreed. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. You yeah. kind of summed that one up. That was good. Yeah. So we'll have to, we'll have to go off and do that on the side. We'll do uh, Cloudcast Systems Integration. There you resell go. nothing. We'll talk to John Troyer and resell nothing but VMware gear. So I want to I want to go back and touch on something because Joe touched on something that Aaron and I have kind of wanted to rant and rave on forever. You talked about virtual desktops. What's your take on virtual desktops? How long of a shelf life does that have? And does that actually solve any real problems, Joe? That's a fantastic question. Again, man, I'm loving this podcast so far. So um, <laughs> virtual desktop solves millions of problems. It's a fantastic value proposition. The only issue has been that we haven't been able to technically execute on it in every environment uh, so far. So anyone you talk to about virtual desktops that's not technical, that you show them what it can do for them, quickly they're ready to sign off. And then when you start looking at well, how am I going to get streaming video or voice over IP, IP telephony down to that desktop? How am I going to integrate this, that, or the other? That's where it starts to fall apart. Virtual desktops is a whole fantastic value proposition. Now we're being able to technically execute on it with some of the new protocols coming out, some of the new devices, and some of the new architectures coming out. The problem is going to be, is that the right solution to the problem in a quick enough time frame compared to some of the other ways that we can we can do this? And again, you know, Google's type offerings will, will come into play and the rest. And I think, yes, virtual desktops are going to continue to be a value. They're going to continue to roll out. We're going to see a lot more of it, but it's going to be in some of the slower moving larger entities that rather than the the smaller moving faster companies. Yeah, this is one that Aaron knows my take on on virtual desktops. I'm I'm sort of of the belief of I'm not exactly sure what problem they really solve. At the end of the day, I get that the endpoint sort of potentially becomes throwaway. I get that you know, in theory, it becomes more secure because your data lives in some centralized place. But I, my, my question is always, can you move fast enough on them? And can you ever justify all the extra moving parts and cost when, you know, you've got all these awesome SaaS applications and ton of different, you know, mobile endpoints these days, or even like lower cost endpoints, but you might just say, maybe instead of making that Windows 7.5 or Windows 8 or Windows 7 upgrade for the same stuff, maybe this is tipping point to move to that next thing. So I, I'm always interested to hear you know, like I say that as a, as a user who really doesn't ever want a virtual desktop, I'm always interested to hear from folks who are, you know, in the field who are dealing with customers who legitimately are saying, yeah, I think this is cool. I think I think we'll we'll buy into it. I think we'll deploy it. I think when you throw well, in snapping and some of the other things that you can do with virtual desktops, a lot of the other stuff that ties into that entire area and the, the legacy investment protection, you're really going to have to see that that is a step for large organizations. It's not going to be everyone's choice, but it is a fantastic way to move. And again, it's a Band-Aid. You look back at the days of virtual tape libraries. That's, that was a huge band-aid in the industry. Let me take expensive disk and make it act like stupid slow tapes so that I can make my backup window slower. It was a stupid idea <laughs> unless you had a horrible backup window that you had to fix right now. You have a horrible desktop administration, management, and, and cost problem. Virtual desktop infrastructure is the way to go. And it might be a band-aid, but it's the only thing you've got available. So when you're out there talking to folks, who do you find ends up driving those projects? Because I, I can't imagine the desktop guys want to... They hate dealing with Windows patching and all that stuff, but who's driving those projects? Well, well, it's definitely not the desktop guys because those are the guys that are going to immediately look at it and think they're losing a job, which may or may not be the case. It's it's usually going to be a data center, some sort of upper level IT management, C level person, somebody who's really looking at big picture value from a technical perspective. 
So, oh, here's the, here's the other thing. So we you know we sort of talk stacks, which is uh, which is Joe's expertise, or at least it, it, it is for this week until he puts on a different hat and has to be an expert on something else. We talked about the fact that none of us in the room uh, know enough to talk about sort of the platform as a service layer, but it's it's obviously you know gaining a lot of buzz and creating a certain amount of confusion. You know, the other big kind of topic interop was going on a couple weeks ago it was going on literally a thousand yards down the road from emc world out in vegas big buzz around interop was all about this idea of open flow which is you know the idea that um you know the old way of doing networking where data path and control path are all kept within the same platforms you know the protocols are, are well defined that's sort of getting turned on its head by this idea of open flow software defined networks have either one of you guys sort of started to dig into this a little bit and, and figure out at least what it means so you you can speak intelligently about it or you start to hear customers and ask anything about it in terms of you know what does it mean or initial kick in the tires <laughs> if you haven't then uh to, at, at a very base level I've, I've kept an eye on it and looked at what's going on and i think it's a it's not ready for prime time from everything i've seen but it's really getting there and the idea is solid if you look at the last place that we haven't commoditized it's the network the network is, is still where you know companies like cisco who i love and support the heck out of their products obviously dominate with hardware intelligence that costs money and things like openflow start to turn that in the same way we've commoditized servers and the rest by taking that intelligence out of the hardware putting it in software and just making sure that the hardware can be bought purchased off the shelf and fast enough to run the processes so it is a very cool idea We'll see where it goes and how long it goes. It, I, from what I've seen, it's, it's just not ready to rock yet. So, so I completely admit I haven't really looked at it at all. Um, <laughs> so I'll ask a dumb question here for the both of you. Is OpenFlow in some ways like OpenStack, but instead of you know, OpenStack's big thing is they kind of really commoditize the storage layer. Is OpenFlow kind of doing that for networking or is that pigeonholing it too much? OpenStack is, is in essence trying to put together OpenStack is much more focused on trying to create a consistent set of APIs between the compute layer, to some extent the network layer, and then the storage layer, right? So instead of having Rackspace APIs and EC2 APIs and VMware APIs and all these different ones that, that somebody who sits either in the middle or you're in the virtualization layer or whatever has to deal with, they're, they're ultimately trying to, to standardize the, the APIs between the infrastructure and to a certain extent to expose up to management, right? So it's it's much more of a how do I get applications deployed on top of VMs or you know compute and storage infrastructure. OpenFlow is is basically trying to say what if instead of having to have intelligence in every single device, right? Every single switch with MAC tables and CAM tables and so forth, and every single router with forwarding tables and security and so forth. What if instead of having every single device having to be intelligent, we could move at least even part of that intelligence to a more centralized location? Right? So we could think about you know, the network as like a big pool of bit-moving wires, if you will, or bit-moving boxes, and you could start to do some unique things about what the forwarding tables look like, um, how VLANs are dynamically created and removed and so forth. So same sort of concept. It's trying to abstract some level of things out of there, but definitely you know, looking at different layers in the, in the overall model. Right? So OpenStack's much more about trying to get compute and storage working, so it's sort of an application story. OpenFlow is basically trying to look at... Does 
does it make any sense to somewhat simplify the network or at least you know move intelligence out of every single endpoint where potentially you could have bugs in software or you just have too many points to configure when you have these large networks but I, I agree with Joe I, I think it's still really new you know I mean there's a lot of people that are trying to figure it out you know the, the one thing that worries me and I and I, I say this and I try not to be biased because folks know I work for Cisco you know having lived in some other worlds where you kind of had centralized controllers so I spent a lot of time in the voice over IP world and, and the SS7 world and some things like that you know there was always this trade-off between your voice types of environments that were distributed where you had control and, and data path um, so protocols like SIP and H20 H323 and so forth and then you had people that would build these sort of giant controller centralized devices with dumb endpoint gateways or, or, or whatever. And the challenge wasn't that you could build a really good controller. Um, you could do that. The challenge was always, could you build it in a way that you could interoperate with endpoints and, and still provide any sort of value? Because at some point, people would always say, well, vendor A makes this controller, but I don't want to have to buy all the endpoints from vendor A. I want to be able to buy a red one from vendor B and one with a thousand ports from vendor C and one with... And the, the trick was there was always some level of sort of proprietariness that you'd make between the endpoints and the controller. And so it'll be interesting to see if this idea of it being open will create some standards or if it'll, you know, sort of fork and create a bunch of mutations and stuff. So anyways, I, I'm, I'm, I'm enough beers in, I probably shouldn't be talking about it too much more. But that's <laughs> kind of what's going on. And that's, that's, that's to me, the piece will be really interesting around OpenFlow and the right. whole, you know, that whole space. So, so, so on one of the really easy, simple concepts of why something like that is necessary. And I think I'm stealing or paraphrasing from Brad Hedlund from Cisco a little bit, but Mac tables is a huge reason. If we scale these layer two domains, if we can we blow out into massively scalable type data centers, hardware is no longer capable of maintaining that type of table at that size. So what are we going to do about it? And that's the way we've traditionally done things. So OpenFlow is kind of one of those, this is a way we could move forward. And, and I think even even that sort of problem, right? I mean, there's always been problems of like, how many routes can you hold? How many Macs can you hold? I mean, you're still going to have to have segmentations of networks so that you go, look, that thing can only hold 80 million Mac addresses. And when I've got thousands of VMs and they're moving around and I'm introducing mobile devices, I mean, you're still going to have to be able to segment stuff, have risk domains, you know, same sort of things that we have in VDI today where we don't put, you know, 300 VMs on one server blade. And I think I think the good news is, for, for people that are looking at all this open source stuff or, you know, open this or commodity that, if you were good at networking or you were good at architecture before, hopefully a lot of those skills are transferable because the design principles are kind of common. It's just going to be, you might have to stand on your head to understand it or lay down sideways to go, oh, okay, now that looks like what I used to know before. So, Joe, I've been wanting to pick your brain about something for a while now. In my mind, there is a very distinct but yet very kind of subtle difference between an integrated stack and a private cloud. And what I mean by that is is typically what I've been seeing a lot of times is around orchestration and provisioning. If you want to do an integrated stack to me is just, you know, could be best of breed, could be same vendor, doesn't matter, but it's a bunch of bunch of parts mushed together to make them work, right? But when you really want to be able to call it a private cloud, in my mind that's where the orchestration, the provisioning, the automation, the service catalogs and things like that come into play to kind of turn an integrated stack into a private cloud. And that 
that was been kind of my take on it, but I wanted to run that by you and also, you know, what are your customers seeing and is that something that you perceive as a difference? So Aaron, uh, because you asked that right now, I'm going to note that it's 9.53 p.m. and I just hit publish on a post that addresses that exact problem. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that should be published on my blog. I was holding off for something that was occurring tomorrow, but no, no, no. So for, so for people listening, what's what's the URL of your blog? Uh, that's uh, www.definethecloud.net. Oh, it's, got, it's, got cl- it's got cloud in it, so it must be good. No, no, it's got cloud in it, so it must be fluff. <laughs> so, no, but I totally agree with you. Uh, that You've got the idea, and, and actually most of, the, most of the products I work with that consider themselves private cloud infrastructures are, are just that. They are the infrastructures for private cloud without the full automation and orchestration layer that goes on top. You really need that idea, if you're, especially if you're going to follow like the NIST definition, you need that idea of self-service provisioning on demand. And most of the infrastructures that are available do not quite offer that on their own out of the box. The flip side of that is, do you really want that? out of the box and can it really come out of the box so even if you take the infrastructures that do there's levels and hours and hours of services that have to get in to integrate it because it's not a one-size-fits-all it's custom tailored to each and every environment so you might see it in the bill of materials you might see it on the product list or the data sheet fact of the matter is you're not getting anything that delivers a private cloud to your door and you can up and run services there you have it ladies so i have to go read your blog I'm going to go read that tonight. So, all right, cool. Brian, what else we got? That's all we had. I mean, we uh, we covered a lot. We got uh, we got the fact, you know, there's a good chance Joe's going to jail at some point uh, later this fall or this this winter time. He'll be yeah, on, do, we, uh, do we need to start, like, we'll put up a PayPal thing to, for bail money for Joe? or He'll be, uh, his car will be in hock. So we, we covered that. We covered, you know, we didn't let you guys duke it out on stacks, but we know there's animosity there, so that's good. We'll have to have you back on. <laughs> so the one thing, you know, the one thing we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see, one of the things that we wanted to do was, was have Joe be a regular guest, basically give him a five-minute rant uh, every week. We haven't been able to figure out how to schedule that, but uh, we'll have to poll our listeners and see if they want that to be on there, because uh, I think I think the attitude's there. I think the knowledge is there. I think people would like it. We just got to figure out how to make that happen, Joe. Hey, I'm, I'm happy to do it if we can make it uh, logistically possible, and uh, absolutely love being on today. So, Aaron, uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we wrap it up? We'll take you home. I think we're getting, uh, like we say, we're getting to the end of uh, this being too long to, to go in one... Uh, one commute to work so let's uh let's let it go let's let us let's finish our drinks and let's get out of here sure absolutely so so joe you already pimped your your blog what what is your twitter as well twitter is uh john is sick with one letter less or j on sick is the way it actually is so j-o-n-i-s-i-c-k oh yeah that's right i, I made it all the way through the podcast without calling yeah, I was john. Just, we had I a bet think. going actually <laughs> so we had a bet that at some point brian was gonna call you john and we actually made it through no worries. I answer to both. <laughs> All right, cool. So that's going to do it for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcastnet or reach us at thecloudcast.net where you'll find links to the show and show notes. You can leave us a comment, send us an email, or details on how to stream us on Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.